Well, thank you, Pastor Morford. <clears throat> and uh, pending uh, the maybe coming storm and the, the size of it and all these things, I, maybe I should say thank yous now, just in case I would not get that opportunity. So uh, thank you to everyone who has brought things in and to the parsonage. I'm a pastor also, so I, I know the value of what you and the faithful laity of the church will do. And uh, it's so appreciated and very, very good. The accommodations have been wonderful. Uh, the fellowship has been excellent. And I even, I even bragged on you today as a church. I put you on Facebook and I, I invited anybody coming through here to stop in that you would treat them right. Okay? <clears throat> I invited them to eat your food and stay in your houses. And... <laughs> Because if you treat them the way that you've treated me, they'll just want to come back. And so, but you really have. It's. Uh, um, I, I wish that was my experience in all places. Uh, I know the difference. I've done a variety of camp meetings, revivals, conventions, and you know when people are with you, and you know when some are not. But uh, I've only sensed open arms, open hearts, and a hand of fellowship has been given to me each time after the service, and I appreciate that so much. Um, I was thinking, I did find a picture that might help us to understand uh, what's coming our way, and that right there, that's a, that's a three-point outline in Michigan. <laughs> I, I thought you'd appreciate that, so <laughs> let's stand together, turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. I'm permitting this, this portion to be um, recorded tonight. I'll probably regret it, but it, uh, there will be a few things on the lighter side. I want you to know that. And you say, are we allowed to do that in revival? I don't know. Are we allowed to do in revival what I've done so far? Okay. Uh, are we, we don't have to be stereotyped into every set of services or they have to be the exact same way with the exact same message. Jesus used a variety of messages to speak to a variety of people about a variety of issues, didn't he? He didn't preach the same thing every place that he went. And um, <clears throat> I try not to with the Lord's help. So, I, um, <clears throat> But let's go back to Isaiah 53 tonight and beginning at verse number three. Uh, this is what it says about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Father, I pray tonight that your presence would continue to be here. Thank you, Lord, for such a song as we heard tonight that you reached way down. And Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that you're able to reach us where we are. And you're able to deliver us, you're able to lift us up, cause us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Lord, tonight we welcome your presence here in this service. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. may be seated. <clears throat> I ended last night with a passage from Psalm 2710, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. And... I told you last night that was, just, that was just such a divine message from heaven under the circumstances, 
that I had described to you, had taken the time to describe to you in last night's service. And what, what, a, what a joy to be able to have the Word of God come to our rescue and to help us in our time of crisis. But I got to thinking about something. I thought, you know, where you and I tend to put a period in our life story, well, I have some words up here, rejected, and then there's a period. Uh, failure, period. I'm not worth anything, period. I can't do anything right, period. They don't want me, period. I'm not needed, period. I, I was told I'm a mistake, period. You see all that? We tend then to begin to believe the punctuation that the enemy wants to put into our lives uh, as he works through individuals and he works through circumstances and uh, we will live the rest of our lives feeling like, yeah, we're, we're rejected and we wake up the next morning, we're rejected and we wake up the next morning, rejected and the next day, rejected, 10 years from now, rejected, we'll spend a whole lifetime convincing ourselves because somewhere, somewhere told us or dis- demonstrated to us we're rejected. I want to tell you something. That is, that is, for the most part, a lie. That may have happened at the moment, but that does not have to endure for a lifetime. Right. Uh, failure may have endured, been a circ- an experience of the moment, but it doesn't have to define your entire life. Um, <clears throat> feeling like you're not worth anything or you just can't do anything right or you're not needed. It may have been a momentary, a one-time, maybe two, maybe even three, I don't know. But that does not have to define your life. And the beauty of it is that God knows how to come along and change the punctuation and change the emphasis in our life. God can change that period. He can walk along, take that finger of his that wrote the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and he'd say, oh no, there's more to this. And he puts that little tail on the end of the period, and what does that do? The comma changes the story. The comma changes, it changes the sentence as if we were to say, wait a minute, <clears throat> rejected uh, failure, no, but, and then God comes along and says, but wanted by God. It might be said to us, or we might say to ourselves, I'm not worth anything to some. And we could put a period there, and God says, no, let's make that a comma, but we're everything to Jesus. Do you see how that just changes all the context of that? I can't do anything right, and then God comes along and says, no, but um, he said that if I meditate in his word day and night, I'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, and whatsoever, uh, I, I will prosper. Okay, do you get that? That's in Psalm 1. Uh, I, I could say I'm a mistake, but God says, yeah, well, maybe you were, but uh, now you're functioning as God intends. Changes everything when God changes the punctuation and the emphasis on the story, the statements of the story of our life. Now, I'm one of those people tonight where God has come in and he's had to do a whole lot of editing. He's had to come along and change a, a several punctuations of period in my life and say, oh no, this is actually, Tucker, this is actually just a comma. There's more to the story because I'm not done with you yet. When I preach that, my mother-in-law gets very excited. I'm telling you, she just, she, she has hope that uh, something, something will turn out right in her son-in-law's life and, and uh, bless her heart <clears throat> 
Here's a prime example of what I gave to you last night. I could have stayed at when my father and my mother forsake me. I could have put a period there and chosen to live the rest of my life in the context of that statement. But God already had a comma right there. He says, yes, but then the Lord will take me up. I don't know. Does that do anything for you tonight? Because it really, it did a lot for me. And I hope that it does for you also. I want to pick up the story that I was telling yesterday. Mom is now gone. If you were not here, uh, I'm sorry, I did not permit it for it to be recorded because I would never, ever want anything to discourage uh, my family from doing the, the right thing. And my mother's trying to do so. Um, <clears throat> but my mother was at this point in the story now, she is gone. Um, <clears throat> Christmas break. Is, is now over. I told you all about that. I walked into the house. My Bible fell open to tw- Psalm 27.10. Mom is now gone. So I am left with the job of taking care of two brothers and one sister. Um, I'm doing this while I've, I've reapplied. I'm working at another nursing home. I'd been fired from the one because there were some things I wouldn't do that were unnecessary. But I went to another nursing home, got another job at a different date. And uh, while I'm there, um, I'm put in charge of all of maintenance at 16. And I told you last night, I'd never, I don't think I would ever put a a 16-year-old kid in charge of maintenance over an entire nursing home. But the, the owner of that nursing home, he became sort of like what we would call a godfather. I mean, he really cared about me and what was happening in my life. He didn't care enough to leave me in his inherit, an inheritance, but he cared enough at that time. So, it's, uh, oh well, like I said last night, we'll take what we can get, amen? <clears throat> but I had an answered prayer at age 17. I, uh, I remembered the time when I was there at Union Bible Academy, and the Lord put me to that test in a chapel service. Do you remember what I'm referring to when he asked me, are you willing to go back to public school? Okay, and I I explained all that. But I also, at a different point, I felt like the Lord gave me a promise that I would get to graduate from Union Bible, uh, what was called the Academy. And I held on to that. Well, it was, here it is now, I'm age 17. This is a year later. I have an answered prayer. All of a sudden, it's Christmas break again. And uh, during Christmas break, the business department of Union Bible College. They called me up. They had my number. They said, Nathaniel, would you like to come back to Union Bible Seminary, the Academy? And I said, you already know I would. And they said, well, your way's paid for the, you know, for the second semester. And I said, okay, great. I said, I, I don't know who did, I, I, I said, I don't know who did this, but please thank them. I'm not sure how this worked out. I, I'm going to tell a story that I told at the school uh, just this week. Um, while I'm there, I meet, I meet my, who is my, now my wife. She has a twin brother. Larry and I, we, we became best of friends. I mean, such good friends. You know you're a good friend when you can look at each other, not say anything, and you already know how to get in trouble. <laughs> and Larry and I were such. We did not have to communicate. We just sort of understood each other. Uh, there was a, we're sitting in the study hall, which was the second floor of Union Bible Seminary. Uh, that building was built during the administration of Abraham Lincoln, so it's old. And out of the side of the, 
of the, um, uh, the library there, they have a fire escape tunnel. There are these panic doors that push in. There's this brass bar that goes across the top. And uh, then you, of course, you should go feet first and you'll slide all the way down to the ground. It's, it's quite a rush, actually, because once in a while they just open it up and let us play in there. And so, <clears throat> but there was this kid, this, uh, this freshman that was in there, a wiry, skinny little kid by the name of Jimmy. And as Larry and I are actually behaving, and we're really, truly working on, we're doing work, you know, homework, Jimmy would come by and he'd flick us on the back of the ear. Have you ever had anybody do that? It's irritating. It's annoying, okay? And in a little bit, he came back again. He flicks us on the back of the ear. And I remember the third time as he was coming, Larry and I gave each other the look. And I kid you not, we did not say a word to each other. When Jimmy came near enough and was now in our trap and he could not get away, I jumped up, I grabbed one arm, and I grabbed a leg. My brother, who is now my brother-in-law, he grabbed an arm and he grabbed a leg and we tipped Jimmy vertical, or excuse me, horizontal, okay? <clears throat> and we already knew what we were going to do. Remember the said fire escape? It's so much better if you go down head first. <laughs> and we walked him over there very quickly. We kicked open those panic doors and we went one, two... Now, Jimmy, at this particular point, has somehow managed to get one hand loose. That brass rail that's at the top that you can hold on to, he's grabbing hold of this, and Jimmy is not being quiet about this situation. He is screaming bloody murder in the library. Across the hall is the principal's office, Brother Fulton. I'm watching the door. I'm listening for the door as I described it. It's a big oak wooden door. It's creepy. They would never oil it. It sounded like something that you would open up inside of a crypt. And it would go something like this. Like that. And of course, it made the same sound going back the other way. I'm listening for that very distinct sound. I'm watching for it to open. And of course, with Jimmy not being quiet about the situation that's going on, I mean, people were trying to help him. Does he not understand this? We're trying, we're just trying to help him to see our viewpoint on the whole situation. In walks, I heard it. And in walks Brother Fulton. Brother Fulton looks creepy in those kind of circumstances big wide eyed and he goes, what's going on in here? I love that voice. It just sounds like something that is, I don't know, it was creepy. Any, any principal's voice is creepy. I used to be a principal and once in a while I did the creepy voice. So I get all those things. And uh, <clears throat> all of a sudden I gave my brother-in-law the look and he is, Larry is smart. He's fast. He is quick. He is intelligent. All of a sudden, I had let go. I had let go of Jimmy. You know, it was one of those things where you let go and let God and all those things. And I'd let go of Jimmy and Larry, but not Larry. No, no, Larry. He lets go of the arm and leg. And all of a sudden, he grabs Jimmy around the waist and he goes, Don't do it, Jimmy. Don't do it. You had to have been there. It was glorious. We saved Jimmy from certain death. Oh, thank the Lord we were there. 
I would dare say some of you have some stories to tell too, but anyhow, <clears throat> Larry began to introduce me to his twin sister and, and uh, she had absolutely no interest in me whatsoever. As a matter of fact, Union Bible Seminary, they, they would do an annual thing down at Louisville, Kentucky. They would rent the Bell Louisville, that big old paddle wheel boat, and they would take all their choirs and their quartets and everybody down there and they'd buy you a huge chicken dinner. It was a big fundraiser is what it was. So I went to Angie and I said, hey, I said, uh, she was the dorm mother over the high school girls as a senior in high school. So we already know, we already know that I'm marrying, a, I'm going to marry a mother superior. You understand what I mean? And uh, well, I didn't know at that point, but I went to the, I went to her dorm, knocked on the door on the outside. She came and I said, um, Angie, I said, you know, they're going to have this uh, fundraiser. And I said, I'd like to ask you out on a date. She said, just a moment, let me go check my schedule and see if I have to work. She went over to the schedule. She picked up the phone, called her supervisor and said, hey, do I have to work that day? And they said, no, you're free and clear. She goes, put me down. <laughs> she came back and very sanctimonious, pious. She said, I am so sorry, I have to work. <sighs> Boy. People, rejection has just been a part of my life, I'm telling you. And uh, oh, what a failure. So anyhow, I go, I go and I, I decide to ask out some other girl and I, I never even dated before. This is a whole new thing for me. And uh, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you know it, Angie, Angie ended up getting assigned. She had to ride down on the bus to go to the same event, but she didn't have a date. And I'm thinking... Hey, wait a minute. This is all going through my brain. Uh, you know what's ironic about that? The girl that I bought a, a ticket for and a corsage for, once we got on the boat, I never saw that girl the rest of the night. My date left me, stood me up. So Angie saw me standing by the rail, looking at the water very forlorn, and she came over and started talking to me. And my brain was going, hey, wait a minute. You know, I'm, I'm starting to formulate some things here. Well, <clears throat> uh, you see this picture up here. I want to tell you what kind of a wife I have. In case you cannot read that, that is an actual uh, bale of hay in western Pennsylvania. And when I had started a church in Wisconsin, there was some farmer wisdom that was given to me. One day I was making a, a pastoral call and this farmer looked at me and said, now, Reverend, I want to tell you something. I said, yes, sir. He said, you never make a bale of hay any bigger than what your wife can't carry. I never knew where I'd use that in the sermon, but here it is. And I, I, we were visiting in western Pennsylvania and said, hey, Ange, I stopped when I saw that big bale of hay because that's the size they make them out there. They got some big, strong women in western Pennsylvania, I'm telling you. <laughs> You don't mess with those Pittsburghers. You know what I'm saying? And uh, I said, Angie, I said, go down there. And now I'm actually up on the road. And she goes, why, why am I doing this? Because I hadn't told her all about this yet. And I said, Angie, make a muscle. And I'm, you know, I'm quite a ways. She goes, okay. And I, I pull out the camera and she goes, what are you going to do with that? And I said, well, a farmer once told me, you never make a bale of hay bigger than what your wife can't carry. I love that picture of her. So I don't really mess with her anymore. I'm just simply saying to you, but that gives you a little bit of, a, of an idea of what kind of girl that I found. 
My senior year, <clears throat> I'm dating Angela, and all of a sudden, my, who is now my brother-in-law, he said, you know, you should go to Michigan, and we got a midwinter break coming up. I went, really? I went, where's Michigan? I'd never been to Michigan in my life. And he goes, oh, for crying out loud. He said, we're going to go snowmobiling. It's the, it's the midwinter break. We get up there, and I met Angie's parents. Now, we're not dating at this point. Uh, my mother-in-law, Karen, my father-in-law, Larry. I'll tell you, those are two of the godliest people that I know. I love them. I appreciate them. But I have done some things to them that I'm, I'm really debating on whether to even tell this tonight since it's recorded. Yeah, I'll tell it. I'll tell it. Uh, the first one here is the, the woman who is now my mother-in-law. She and I enjoyed teasing each other so much and so bad during that, that midwinter break that we were together those few days. That one day in her kitchen, she all of a sudden looked at me. She doubled up her fist and she said, Tucker, I'm going to punch your lights out. I said, I don't think so. I stepped forward. She stepped forward. She swung. She hit me between the eyes. She knocked me out cold. That is not a preacher's story, people. I cannot make up something that bad. That is not embellished. It shocked her. It shocked me. It shocked Angie. Larry thought it was hilarious. <clears throat> when I woke up and we realized what we had had happen, oh my. Well, <clears throat> Angie's mother was very, she was just apologizing. And I, you know, I played it up. I took it. I, I took all of her apologies and, you know, I, I let all that have, ha have happened. And the next day, you, you would think, you would think that two people would learn their lesson. Would you not? Wouldn't you think they would? People, this story gets worse. Maybe you ought to cover the children's ears. I mean, it gets bad. Because what happens next is <clears throat> her mother and I got to mouthing off and teasing each other so bad again I looked at her and I said, lady, not this time. I bent over, I took my left arm, I kind of buckled her knees, pulled them in towards me, which made her sort of kind of go down. I picked her up, threw her over my shoulder. I marched her into the bathroom. She's yelling for her husband, Larry. I took her in, I caught, turned on the cold water on the shower. I said, lady, I think you're, you are, I think you need to cool off. And I put her in. You know, they don't preach this kind of stuff at marriage seminars. <laughs> not at all. I actually tell people, I actually tell people, do not try this one at home. Do not try this one. <laughs> one week later, Angie and I were dating. I mean, I was afraid not to after what I'd done to her mother, you understand. Now, <clears throat> when, we got, when we did get married, and I'm jumping forward here a little bit in time, uh, they were part of what was called the Allegheny Westland Methodist, and there was a place called Stoneboro Camp. My wife and I, remember I'm jumping forward here a little bit <clears throat> because I'm telling you some of the nonsense I've done to my mother-in-law. Uh, <clears throat> my wife and I took care of the boys' dorm. We had about 50 to 70 boys. And all of a sudden, this one teenage kid walked up to me, and he had one of those strike-anywhere matches. He goes, hey, Brother Tucker, watch this. He puts the match inside of his mouth and on the back side of his front teeth, he pulls the match and he lights it. I didn't even know you could do that. And sometimes things hit my brain that fast. Other times, it's about two or three hours later. But this time was one of those times when I had a reply right now. I mean, right now. I went, ah, ain't nothing. 
He goes, really? Oh, no. I said, my mother-in-law's armpits are so rough she can strike a match. <laughs> now, Stoneboro Campground has about, usually about 2,000, 2,500 people. That little story caught like wildfire. My mother-in-law, my mother-in-law, she worked in the tape duplicating room of the camp. And before the day was over with, she comes stomping up to me with her husband on her arm. And I mean, she is gritting her teeth and she goes, Larry, do you know what your miserable son-in-law said about me? Do you know? And, he, and my father-in-law, he's a very quiet man. He goes, no, I don't know. He's, he's looking like, what in the world? She goes, go ahead, Nate, tell him. Just tell, tell him what you said, Nate, go ahead. And I told him the story as I just told you. And I love this man because he has such discernment and wisdom. All of a sudden, he kind of put his hands like this, rocks back and forth, looks over at her, looks down, looks over, and he goes, Ma, I've been with you all these years, and I didn't even know you could do that. <laughs> I love him. He's my hero. <laughs> Let's see, do we have time for another? I don't know. I told you to be a little lighter tonight. I, I did. And you don't normally get this in a revival, and you're probably wondering, where in the world, what redeeming message does this all have? It does. But I'll tell this one. When we were still young, married couples, my father-in-law was a fireman. And one night, uh, he worked at the fire department for, I think, about 38 years or something like that. And um, he was working second shift. Angie and I, my brother-in-law, and he had been, and is now married, we would all go to mom and dad's every Friday night, and we would we'd sleep there. We just, we'd, uh, it's what we did, okay? And we're a close family. One night, dad gets home around 1130 at night. <clears throat> I call him dad. And uh, he goes, hey, he goes, you know what? Who wants McDonald's? I'm buying. We all want McDonald's. Now, he has his baseball cap. It has his Fort Gratiot Fire Department emblem on it. And he has a jacket that says Fort Gratiot Fire Department. And he's an officer, so he carries a, ra a two-way radio. And he has a light bar that's on top of his pickup truck. And, and I said, hey, I'll go with you. And as I'm going out, now remember, this is 1130 at night. My, I had a younger brother-in-law that had been adopted. He had this little SWAT police motorcycle helmet, a toy helmet. And I saw that there and I jam it down on my head and my earlobes are sticking out. And I found a pair of dark sunglasses and I put them on. I go out to his truck and he goes, Tucker, what are you doing? I said, I'm going with you. He goes, like that? I went, look at you. <laughs> and I, I wanted to feel important, you know. And he goes, okay. <laughs> There was not a drive-through. You had to go in. But this is when McDonald's had first got their stainless steel counters that they all come out with. And do you remember when they would take those plexiglass Ronald McDonald houses that you'd put change in? Anybody remember those things? They do that around here? All of a sudden, I don't know, it was one of those thoughts that hit me just like this. I didn't have time to think about it. I should have, but I didn't. And all of a sudden, I decided to feign being a person that had severe issues. I'll put it like that. I kind of contorted my body. I changed my voice. I picked up the Ronald McDonald house. I tipped it upside down. And I just very, very loudly went and started going like, Dad! 
God, we got money for our cheeseburgers, and I'm shaking change. It is going all over the counter. It's going back behind the grill. It's going out there in the restaurant. The, the, the McDonald's employees, they're looking at us like, whatever. My father-in-law steps away from me and goes, I don't know how he got in here. I don't, you know. <clears throat> this guy has experienced some serious disassociation issues right at this point. And uh, he goes ahead, he pro they get the order, and the whole time, I just never stop. I'm shaking this Ronald McDonald thing, changes going all over the place. I'm making a big deal about getting cheeseburgers. He got his order, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw him slip around me and head for the door. I am convinced he would have left me there. But still in this contorted form of body and with that very distressed voice, I slammed that thing down, that Ronald McDonald house back down on the counter. I go running as, as if I'm crippled and yelling, Dad, don't leave me. And I grabbed him around the waist. He pulled me out the door. And when we got out, he said, I am never taking you to McDonald's again. <laughs> I love him. I love him. Seriously. If you can do those kind of things as a son-in-law and you're alive to tell the story, it's a miracle, people. It's an absolute miracle. That's a spiritual message for tonight in revival. I have just told you a complete miracle. <clears throat> There's my father-in-law, my son. I'll just throw that one in there really quick. Um, well, yeah, I don't have a time to tell you all about my grandkids tonight, so we'll just keep moving. Let's get to the heart of the story. My, I told you last night that my father did not call me son. I think I look like him. <clears throat> he didn't call me son. My father-in-law beat me. Many, many times he would come home drunk. He was a truck driver. He was six foot four. He was 500 pounds. His hand was, one, his hand was two fingers wider than my hand. He was a very, very big man. I, of course, had become married, and I'm in the ministry. I feared my father. My, my wife said that for several years after we were married, she said I would wake up in the middle of the night screaming, begging my father not to beat me. It had that much of an impact on me. I mean, here I'm an adult far away from him, what's he going to do to me? I would occasionally see him. The only thing he would call me is very, in a very gruff voice, always, boy. That's all he would call me. But I'll never forget when I was pastoring at Erie, Pennsylvania, that um, all of a sudden I received a telephone call. My wife took it. It was her birthday. And she goes, well, thank you. And she goes, yeah, she's right here. And she hands the phone to me. And here's what I heard. Hello, son. Now, that sounded like my dad's voice, but I've never... I put the hand up to the receiver. I looked at my wife and I said, I think my dad's delirious and sick. She goes, why? I said, he just called me son. Man, this is big stuff. He drank hard. He was having issues with his liver, I, would, I later found out. 
he's kind of talking small talk to me, and all of a sudden he goes, son, did you hear what happened? I said, no, what, what, what happened? He goes, oh, I got saved. Maybe he's still delirious and sick. I'm not sure. No, he, he, and he starts telling me how. He was driving a semi. He's out there all by himself. And all of a sudden, Psalm 23 came to his mind. And then a song that I had never heard, I'm the lamb that the shepherd left the flock for. And he said, all those words, those scriptures and the lyrics of that song came to my mind. And he said, son, I gave my heart to Jesus. I was so thrilled. I was. You know, the next nine months, my father, he was such a changed man. I mean, the difference between day and night. Just the way he talked, just the way he conducted himself, he was so changed. And I'm thinking, if I could have only known this all my life. But as time went on, all of a sudden now he had to stop driving and he was becoming very ill. And I'll never forget that <clears throat> finally my father said to me, he said, son, he said, I'm downtown Indianapolis. I, he said, I'm in, I'm in a hospital. He said, I don't know. Could you, is, could you come see me? I said, dad, I'll come. I was pastoring in Erie, Erie Pennsylvania. I made the trip to Indianapolis, got to the hospital there. We actually spent about three days, my wife and I. And uh, my father, who had been 500 pounds, was now 200 pounds. I had never seen my father like that before. We talked about everything, just everything. But I had been a pastor long enough, and I sensed, and I think he did too, and I said, Dad... I may not see you alive again. He goes, I know. And I'll never forget the, the third day I said, you know, Dad, I've got to go home. I've got to go back to my church. I've got my ministry. And he goes, it's all right. I remember stepping out of the room, getting ready to go down the hallway, and all of a sudden, I don't know, there was just something in me that, one more time, one more time. I ran back in there and I gave my father a hug and honestly, both of us just wept. And those big, big arms that had beaten me and those hands that had beaten me so many times, that voice that cursed at me so many times as a child, now, now this man is blessing me. He's praying for God's blessing over his son. That's, that's a big change. My wife is standing outside. And she's crying. We're all kind of crying while well, we're crying. And I, I just remember that. I remember that last look at my father's face, and he was just so peaceful. That brought me. It brought me comfort. Just seeing that peace. And I knew in my heart, this is it. I will never see him this side of heaven again. It would be about a week later, if I remember correctly, uh, he was on a list to receive a liver transplant. They rushed him from Indianapolis to St. Louis, Missouri. He died on the operating table. I got the call. Hmm. But I want to back up now before we get out of the hospital again. 
because there's something that happens before he gets out of the hospital here at Indianapolis. Do you remember the person who was my best friend who had left with my mother? That had lasted for about 10 years and then he got away from her and he became saved and matter of fact, because he'd never married her, matter of fact, he had married and had a daughter and he was an assistant pastor down in Kentucky. The story gets better. Out of the blue, I had just made it back to Erie, Pennsylvania when this young man, whom I haven't heard from in years, calls me up and says, Hey, Nathaniel, God has put it on my heart that I need to go to your father and ask your dad to forgive me. And he said, Would you go with me? I said, I can't do that. I said, I was just, I, I was just visiting with my father. He goes, well, will you call your dad and ask him if I can come? Do you remember the story of Joseph in the Bible when he decided to put his brothers to the test to see if they were really up and up about all their changes? I decided to do that to my dad and to my friend. I wanted to see if these two men really had what they were professing. I needed this assurance. I called my father. I did not tell him why, but I told him who. I said, he would like to visit you. My father got quiet. I thought, oh, yeah. Now, believe me, my dad had done a lot of things too. My father was far from innocent in that whole situation. I want to make that clear. But then all of a sudden, all of a sudden he goes, okay, son, he can come visit me. All right. Hung up the phone, made the next telephone call, called my friend back. I said, yeah, you can go visit him. Here's the address. But I did not tell my friend that my father was in the hospital. So when my friend gets there, he realizes where he's going. A couple of days later, he calls me back and I hear him crying and sobbing. And I'm going, oh dear. But then he begins to, I'm going to tell you the story they told me. He goes, Nathaniel, and I mean, he is sobbing. He goes, you're never going to believe what happened. I said, I have no idea. He said, I, I realized the address, what you gave to me. I made my way up in the hospital. I went to the room. He says, I kind of stuck my head in. Oh, by the way, what I'd forgot to tell you was, I reminded this young man, I said, you do remember that my father said, if he ever sees you again, he'll kill you. And you know it, don't you? He goes, yes, I do. I said, you're still willing to take that risk? Remember, I didn't tell him dad's in the hospital. I'm putting these two guys to the test. I'm, doing the, I'm pulling the Joseph thing. This, guy, this young, young man sticks his head in the door and he looks at my dad and he goes, Sam, can I come in? And this is what he's telling me. He said, he said, Nathaniel, your dad, he said, Sam looked at me and said, I know why you're here. Now remember, I hadn't told my dad. I only told him he's coming. He said, I know why you're here and you're forgiven. But he said, would you do something for me? And this is what the young man's telling me. He said, your dad looked at me and said, but would you forgive me too? And he's sobbing as he's telling the story. And he said, the next thing is, he came in. He said, Nathaniel, he said, Sam put that great big massive arm up to me 
pulled my head down to his chest and the two of us wept and asked forgiveness and we wept and we asked for forgiveness and we said sorry and we wept and we asked for forgiveness. People, I want to tell you something. There, you cannot orchestrate that kind of forgiveness. Only God can pull that one off. I was thrilled. It was that last confirmation for me. I just needed to know this. These two guys really have the goods. They have, they have what they're professing. I take you, my father, of course, as I've already said, I'll come back to the story now. I get the call. He has passed away. I remember going to the funeral. I remember standing there at the casket. I remember my two brothers and my sister looking at me and saying, Nathaniel, they, they look up to me, I'm the oldest brother. They said, do you think dad made it? I said, come here, let me tell you a story. They hadn't heard the story yet. They knew that dad was professing, but they hadn't heard that story. Can I ask you a question tonight? What, what's it, what, what's it going to take? What's it going to take for some people to finally be reconciled? Will it take a deathbed experience? I mean, I'm glad if that happens, but, but what's it take? You know, I don't know tonight who is here who might need to take care of a spiritual issue on the inside so that you can take care of a relationship issue on the outside. I don't know who's here. But there might be somebody here tonight that you just simply need to take care of it. This altar is still a great place to do that. It's not the only place, but it's a great place. Can we stand together tonight? <clears throat> I have a chorus up here that I so love to attach to this story. I did not make arrangements with a pianist, but if a, if a pianist could come and if they know this song, could they just begin to play it gently? It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Well, think, think about, that. Think about that, that phrase right there. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. I, hey, I, I know what I've gone through. And it's not been for nothing. It's, what I've went through is simply to be able to tell people, that, look, where I put a period in my life, God come along and said, oh no, this is a comma. There's a whole lot more to the story. Amen? As this is playing and as we're singing... And if a person has a definite spiritual need in your heart for anything or any reason, could I invite you to come tonight and just simply kneel here at the altar? There's people, I'm, I'm pretty confident there's people who will pray with you here tonight and we won't feel rushed. Let's sing this chorus here together. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus, life's trials will seem so small. When we see Christ, one glimpse of His dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see 
Let's try it one more time. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of His dear face all sorrow will erase so bravely run the race till we see Christ. Will you play it through one more time? No singing, just heads bowed, eyes closed. I would certainly want to give every opportunity as best as I know how to allow a person to have the liberty and freedom to come and pray at this altar. I don't know how God has spoken to you throughout these few nights that we have been together, but if there's any indication by the things that you've been telling me as you're walking out the door, you're saying things like, I appreciate that, and that's very kind. But you know, if you don't act upon the truth, as much as you appreciate what has been said, it needs to have an effect for all of eternity. Maybe you're just that Christian that's walked with the Lord for years and you've needed some encouragement. I hope it's done with that for you. Or maybe you're just a brand new Christian like, boy, I'm, I love Jesus, but I wonder if I can make it. I'm, I'm here to tell you tonight, you can make it. Regardless of the length of time that you've been walking with Jesus, one of these days, it's going to be worth it all. We're going to see him. Amen. Is there anyone here that wants to pray? Anybody that needs to just talk to Jesus about the needs of your own heart? Father, tonight I pray that you will go with us. You are the master of the wind and the waves. You're the master who comes in the storms of our life. Lord, we may have a storm that's blowing this way. We don't know. Whatever your will is for tomorrow. If tonight's the last service, so be it. But if not, would you just bring us back together safely tomorrow? Watch over us and help us throughout the night and cause our hearts, Lord, to take courage. Even in the song that we have sang here at the last, Lord, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. But we acknowledge between here and there, sometimes, Lord, we have to just simply say, it gets rough. And we get discouraged and we get tired in the battle. You will never leave us. Where we put a period, you come along and say, oh no, there's more to the story. Go with us, we pray, and use us, dear Jesus. Use each of us for your glory, we ask. Father, we love you tonight. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. <laughs>